Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. I've been talking about LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, history.com. You've heard about it several times in the introduction of this podcast. So get on out to LearnTrueHistory.com to get history the way it was intended to be told with no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. But not only that, I've got my new How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, my forthcoming book. So I want you to go to LearnTrueHistory.com to sign up for that great program. But also, if you go to BlameHamilton.com, you can get in on some giveaways for my forthcoming book. So two websites for you, LearnTrueHistory.com and BlameHamilton.com. Get in on both of those things. LearnTrueHistory.com is the place to go to learn history the way it was intended to be told. BlameHamilton.com is where you learn about how Alexander Hamilton was the greatest villain in American history. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 100. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Can't believe it's already been 100 episodes, but here we are. And I'd like to start with reminding you that if you do like this podcast, you can share it around on social media, and you can find me on social media. You can find me on Facebook and uh, like me there. Just search for Brian McClanahan. That's Brian with an O. It's the uh, same thing with Twitter, at Brian McClanahan. You can follow me there, and of course, you can subscribe to my YouTube page, just search for Brian McClanahan. If you do like this podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes. And please, if you've not done so, go out and leave a review there. Uh, that I would greatly appreciate it. Also, if you want to, you can help support The Brian McClanahan Show. You can go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com forward slash support. And you can throw me a few pennies, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. Also, if you go to brianmcclanahan.com and you give me an email address, I will send you a free ebook. Forgotten Founders in a free audiobook, read by yours truly, of the same title, Forgotten Founders. So go on out there and do that. You'll get a couple of emails uh, from me per week. And if you have not already done so, remember that the Blame Hamilton promotion only has about a month left. It expires on September uh, 18th when the book comes out, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. So go on out to BlameHamilton.com. Follow all the procedures there, and you can get a couple of giveaways if you order uh, two books or one giveaway if you order one book. So go on out to blamehamilton.com, find all that material. Okay, so I promised that I would do something a little different in the 100th episode of the Brian McClanahan Show, and this actually springs out of my own personal experience and where I've come uh, as a historian, how I've gotten to where I am doing this show and some of the other things that I do. And people often ask me when I go to when I go to speak or uh, they'll send me emails, you know, I want to do this, this, and this, and how do I do that? And a lot of it revolves around, you know, how do I get involved in doing history? I really like history. I really like politics, but I don't necessarily know what to do. And I was actually listening to uh, a podcast. It was on the Tom Woods show the other day, and he talked about his journey to where he became the podcaster Tom Woods and, of course, the entrepreneur Tom Woods. And he started out as a community college uh, professor, and then um, he got involved in popular history, and he took a different path. And I think that that's an interesting story. And of course, mine in some ways parallels parallels uh, Tom's path, though um, I don't quite have the following that Tom Woods does. But um, I think it's important to um, let people know that there's another path if you want to do history other than 
the academy. So when I was an undergraduate uh, in college, I uh, decided that I wanted to do history. And um, the only path that I thought you could take at that point, of course, was going to graduate school and getting an advanced degree. And of course, I have a master's and a PhD in history and then going out and teaching in college because that, that was the path for the historian. And so I did those things. I went out and I got a master's degree and I got a PhD. Of course, in the meantime, between those, I also worked in sales and did some other things. Uh, and then I uh, got a job at a, at a community college, and that's where I still continue to work, but for my, for my uh, full-time employment. But um, in, in the process of doing that, I was given an opportunity uh, back in 2008 to write a popular history, and that was my first book, *The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Founding Fathers*. In fact, uh, before that, I was before I wrote that book, I was given the opportunity to submit a proposal for another book in the *Political Incorrect Guide* series, and I was turned down for that. But I, I kept the uh, information handy, and I forwarded them a proposal, and they and uh, Regnery went ahead and and accepted the the proposal, and I wrote that *Pig to the Founding Fathers*. But I didn't understand at that point um, what to do with that. Now, that was a great opportunity for me, and a lot of people don't have that. Uh, a lot of people don't get the opportunity to write a book in a series that have been well-established. And, of course, Tom Woods had written the first book in that series and did fabulously well. When he wrote that, he was still working at a community college. And then, of course, he was able to go work at the Mises Institute, and the rest is history, so to speak. Uh, and of course, as he as he wrote that book, he went out on speaking tours and did other things and came into contact with people. And this actually gets into this area where I think is the most important thing you can do if you're interested in history or politics is get into the popular realm. So too often we think that in order to be engaged in history, we have to follow the academy. And of course, if you if you follow the academy, the professional his, history track, you're going to go out and you're going to get a Ph.D., if you don't get a PhD for one of the top schools or uh, have a great networking skills, and I think that's something that you have to cultivate, even if you're not going to go work in the academy, you have to have some networking skills. If you're not going to do that, then you, if you have that and you can network and you get a job, you're going to need to go to academic conferences or you need to publish academic papers, you're going to need to write book reviews for the academic journals, and you are going to need to produce academic tomes. Uh, typically monographs. Usually you take your dissertation and you publish that. And uh, then you might write a couple of more books um, to keep tenure or to get tenure. And that's the typical path for the academic historian. And they, uh, they write journal articles here and there, and uh, they present papers. And this is, how you, this is how you solidify your career there and how you move up in the academic field. But of course, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably don't have the same views as most academic historians. They are generally left of center, if not far left, and they generally only hire themselves. In fact, uh, the academy has become fairly incestuous with that. Uh, they, they tend not to be very uh, liberal, quote-unquote, in the truest sense, and that they accept a wide variety of uh, interpretations. And so this podcast is also going to focus on that idea of history, too, and what that is. But uh, generally, they are the e-liberal liberals. Um, for, and, and for example, if you go and you study uh, Reconstruction, you're going to study a very narrow view of Reconstruction. You can't really deviate from Eric Foner, in other words, and Eric Foner being the communist. Uh, if you start saying, well, you know, the Dunning School has something to offer, nope, you can't say that. You can't admire E. Merton Coulter's 
the South during Reconstruction. You can't look at any of that stuff. You can't look at any of the Dunning School historians, for example, who uh, who had a different view of Reconstruction than the Eric Foner School, because that is uh, not allowed, and then you'll become persona non grata. Uh, they just don't want you around discussing these things. You can as a graduate student, but you won't get a job. Uh, so... Uh, it's very, very difficult if you are, and of course, you're never going to get hired at one of the major research institutions, one of your public IBs like University of Virginia or University of North Carolina or an Ivy League school. Uh, it's not going to happen. You might get hired at a regional college, uh, maybe a smaller state college, but or maybe a Christian college. You can get hired at those type of places, but you are not going to be accepted in the mainstream academy, which... Uh, is where people think you need to go to have any kind of influence. But this is simply not true. Not true at all. In fact, I would suggest that I probably reach more students on a daily basis by not teaching in the academy, in the mainstream academy, than I do if I did. In the mainstream academy, I would have to present papers to academics. I'd have to go and speak to academics. And I would have my classes, my lecture classes, which may not reach more than 25 students, and I would only teach about three of those. I might have two undergraduate courses and then maybe a graduate course, depending. Maybe you have four classes, but usually it's three. And so my graduate classes maybe have 10 students. Now, you can look at that as saying, all right, we're going to exponentially reach a large number of students because if I teach graduate students, they will go out and teach more students because they're going to get jobs and on down the line. You can look at that as exponential growth in your interpretation. And we find that in uh, how history is being taught in the public school and university realm today. There is a tremendous amount of influence there. However, the counterweight is exactly what I'm doing now and writing popular history. Go into your Barnes & Noble, if you have one, or your Books A Million, or your local bookstore, I don't care what it is, and look at the history section. And do you find many books in that section that are written by Mainstream academics. You won't. You're going to find popular history. You're going to find Ron Chernow. You're going to find Meacham. You're going to find uh, David McCulloch. Now, of course, some of these guys uh, are well-trained. McCulloch is, is a well-trained historian. They are. Some of them have advanced degrees, but they've decided to go in a different path. In other words, what they are doing is not writing academic history they are writing popular history, and that is the entire key to unlocking how we change interpretation of American history. In fact, what you would find in American history uh, is that most history, we're, we're not debating facts. You know, Eric Foner is offering an interpretation of history. Forrest MacDonald offered an interpretation of history. I offer an interpretation of history. Uh, John Meacham offers an interpretation of history. So does Ron Chernow. They offer an interpretation. However thinly veiled or, uh, or expertly veiled, they're offering an interpretation of history. And so when you go, to, and, I, and I did a, a podcast on Andrew Jackson, and of course I did one recently on uh, populism, and I took that from that magazine, that Time magazine I found in the aisle at Walmart. That's a popular history. This is what people are going to get. They're going to watch turn on AMC. They're going to watch a documentary on the History Channel. They're going, to, they're going to go out and get their history from popular sources. This is how the vast majority of Americans come by their history. 
and why popular history is so important. Why public history, museums, historic markers, statues, these things are so important. It's why, if you look at, for example, the current assault on Confederate monuments and things of that nature, this is such an important battle. Because that history is popular history. You go and you see the monument, you read the inscription on it, maybe you find a historic marker, you go to a museum, you'll see the material, and the interpretation of that history becomes paramount. So all of history is not really, it's not about fact, it's about interpretation. That's what the battle lines are drawn over. How we interpret the material we see in front of us. And this is a long-standing, a long-standing uh, battle in history. And how we view history between historians, between people who write history. In fact, when you study history, what you're really studying are the various interpretations of history. And historians started figuring this out long ago. The Greeks understood, for example, Thucydides understood, that he was entirely dependent on his sources to write his history. And people saw things differently. And so if he's writing the Peloponnesian Wars... He's going to understand that the history he gets from the Spartans is going to be different from the history he gets from the, from the Athenians because they view the same thing differently. And so he's entirely dependent on the stories that he's getting from these people and the documents and sources he can get from these people to write his history. And so his history is never going to be entirely objective because you cannot have objective history. And I point to, there's actually a really good book on this particular topic by a man named Peter Novick. And it's entitled That Noble Dream. It was actually published in 1988. And the subtitle is The Objectivity Question and the American Historical Profession. Because he points out that there really is, this is why he calls it That Noble Dream, there is no objectivity in history. You can't find it. And so oftentimes we have, for example, people saying that one interpretation of history is just completely biased, it's a myth, uh, that we... Um, that is just perpetuated by those who have a biased view of history, and we have to look at these unbiased historians who believe that uh, who believe something else. Uh, and I think this is just simply untrue. So I point to uh, uh, a passage in this particular book, and it was written by Kenneth Stamp. Kenneth Stamp uh, studied. Uh, history under William Heseltine in the 1940s. And Kenneth Stamp is well known as being a quote-unquote neo-abolitionist when he talks about the war and other things. He, he has a view of the war that's in line with, say, the northern view of uh, the conflict post-war, or at least leading into the war. And this would be the slave power was behind things. And so if you read Kenneth Stamp, that's what you're going to get. But this is often almost always seen as the truth, the objective history. But this is what Kenneth Stamp had to say in 1945, quote, I'm sick of the Randalls, Cravens, and other doe faces who crucified the abolitionists for attacking slavery. If I had lived in the 1850s, I would have been a rabid abolitionist. When the secession crisis came, I would have followed the abolitionist line, let them secede, and good riddance. But once the war came, I would have tried to get something out of it. I would have howled for abolition and for the confiscation and distribution of large estates among Negroes and poor whites, as the radicals some of them did. I would have been a radical because there was nothing better to be. I couldn't have been a conservative Lincoln Republican and rub noses with the Blairs and Sewards, and I couldn't have been a Negro-hating Copperhead. My only criticism of the radicals is that they weren't radical enough, at least so far as the Southern problem was concerned. 
And of course, Stamp is often viewed as an objective historian, but is that objective? So we really have this noble dream of objectivity, and what we have is a battle over interpretation and who's going to win. And so we can look at it going into the academy. Of course, Kenneth Stamp was part of the academy. Eric Foner is part of the academy. We can look at going into it that way. James McPherson is part of the academy. Or we can attack it from another way. And so people say, what can I do? I'm tired of reading this stuff. I get so angry. I read these academic historians, and they just really irritate me. Well, you have the popular avenue. The popular avenue. And I remember going to a lecture by Shelby Foote back in the late 90s. And his position was this. Historians need to learn how to write. And of course, if you don't know who Shelby Foote is, maybe you're listening to this podcast and you never heard of Shelby Foote before. But he wrote a three-volume history of the war entitled The Civil War, A Narrative. And Shelby Foote was prominently featured on Ken Burns' Civil War at PBS, which... If you ask anyone how they get their history of the, of the war, they're probably going to say, well, I watch Ken Burns' PBS series. If they're a little older, that's what they've gotten. Uh, maybe they have, have uh, done a little reading online somewhere. But this is, is instructive because people are getting most of their history from these type of sources, popular histories. They go to the Barnes & Noble and they pick up a book there that's written for a popular audience. They go and watch a PBS documentary. They read a few articles online about something. They go to your popular sources, and this is how they get their understanding of the past. Or they watch a movie, which, of course, is fictionalized in so many different ways, but it does tell a story. People think that if they go out and they watch Braveheart, for example, they're getting the true story of William Wallace, which is not true. But they think, oh, yeah, this is this. I mean, there's, it's based on that. Or if you even watch Hacksaw Ridge, you think you're getting the, the true story of that particular battle. But you're not. In fact, there was licenses taken with that particular battle as well. I mean, it's a great movie. I'm just picking on two Mel Gibson films here because Mel Gibson does a very good job with historical epics. But you're not getting the whole story. And I, and I talked about this with Turn. Uh, the episode I did on Turn, the, the show on AMC, and there's others, you know, but uh, this is where we need to be doing a better job in getting involved in popular history. And Shelby Foote is right. You need to learn how to write. Most people can't read an academic book on a historical subject because the writing is so poor, it'll put you to sleep in about five minutes. Or it's so dense, it takes you uh, 20 minutes to read one page to get through the jargon the pedantry of the particular topic. So you have to learn how to write if you're going to be a popular historian. So that was my avenue. I thought, okay, I've written this popular history. Now let me write more. And in the process, let me do a podcast. And I will do. I will write online. I will write popular histories online. I'll get involved in writing some op-eds and things of this nature. And this is all stuff, a lot of this stuff I did for free. I didn't get, I didn't get paid to write op-eds. Unless you support this podcast, I don't get paid to do this podcast. Um, I have been paid to write books, but a lot of what I do is free. You can listen to this podcast for free. All you want, go out there, download it, listen to it for free. I do appreciate your support, but if you want to listen to it for free, that's your prerogative. So I do these things for free in an effort to teach popular history. And so... Um, I want to point to a quote that I often use when I go into my classes and I talk about history. There's actually three or four here I want to, uh, to mention. 
The first is by a man named John Lucas, and uh, he wrote a wonderful book entitled Historical Consciousness, among others. But this is his definition of history. History is the memory of mankind, and so history is the remembered past. If we don't remember it, it doesn't exist. We know what happened. We know something happened, but what happened? And so as we discover things, we're remembering them. And how we remember them, how we interpret those memories, leads into a consciousness as a people, an interpretation. And people are always trying to influence your remembering of the past. It is as real as anything if you remember it that way, if you interpret it that way. So remember, history is interpretation, not fact. And so this is why popular history matters. And I want to, uh, there's a quote by G.M. Trevelin where he gets to this. Quote, since history has no properly scientific value, its only purpose is educative. And if historians neglect to educate the public, if they fail to interest it intelligently in the past, then all their historical learning is valueless except insofar as it educates themselves. If historians neglect to educate the public, not the academic community. That community, in many ways, is irrelevant. Because if you're looking at, we'll just take these Confederate monuments again. If you're looking at the battle lines there, it's about public understanding of the past. And maybe they got their public understanding from the educational environment, but a lot of people get it from other places. They've watched a movie on it. They've read internet articles on it. They've heard a radio interview. They've done something besides read Eric Foner. Most people get their history from popular sources. They go into the Barnes & Noble and pick up a book on the war, and this is what they read. If they read a book, or they go to some website, and they read some article there about the war or the meaning of the war. Or they might get it from their K through 12 teachers, and why I say, you know, if people want to really have an impact, you don't necessarily have to teach in college. Go out and teach at a community college, or go out and teach in a high school, uh, because if that's what you really want to do and try to reach students, you can reach students that way, and then you can do other things to try to reach the public in greater numbers. We have to interest the public intelligently in the past, as Trevelyn said, and that's where you have to learn how to write. Most historians can't write. So when you, if you want to do something, write popular histories. Learn the art of writing. Read Strunk and White, the elements of style. Go out and read. Don't, first of all, don't ever model your writing after a 19th century figure that you write because 19th century writing is dense. So don't do it. We're not, and, but you do need to read good writing. And if you do read good 19th century literature that's poetic, of course, that can help you write better histories. But most people, and this is something I had to learn, most people don't read on a college level. Most people read on an 8th to a 12th grade level. Even 12th grade is a little bit too hard at times. So you write for the lowest common denominator, and you make it brisk and crisp, and you hit your points, and you go forward. For example... If you ever read a Pat Buchanan column, they're wonderful, but they are short, sweet, and to the point. They are crisp, and you can get a lot of stuff out of it in a very short amount of time. Learn how to be Spartan. Learn how to write. 
It's one of the best things I can tell you to do. Also, a couple of other quotes, and this is, gets into this, this idea of objectivity. Jacob Burkhart, who was a 19th century historian, said this, quote, To each eye, perhaps, the outlines of a great civilization present a different picture. In the wide ocean upon which we venture, the possible ways and directions are many, and the same studies which have served for my work might easily, in other hands, not only, not only receive a wholly different treatment and application, but lead to essentially different conclusions. So again, history is biased. There is no objective history. And what we need to understand is that this is, this is a, a conflict over interpretation, not fact. There are very few facts. There is much interpretation. Livy, who was a great Roman historian, said the study of history is the best medicine for a sick mind. For in history you have a record of the infinite variety of human experience plainly set out for all to see, and in that record you can find yourself and your country both examples and warnings, find things to take as models, base things rotten through and through to avoid. So there is a usable past to Livy, and of course that was his job to come up with a usable past so that he could rekindle the spirit of the old Roman citizen. That was, that was the whole point of Livy writing his histories. So I say all these things to get you interested in popular history. And that was the path I took. I have people email me. What? Oh, your podcast is great. I wish there was a podcast on this. So start it. I had one person email me and said, I wish there was a podcast on British history like you do on American history. All you got to do is go out about in microphone, get a microphone. Uh, the software is for free. Uh, you can get Audacity, which is uh, free. And plug in your microphone, a couple hundred bucks, and you're, and you're up and running. And then you just have to have a place to publish your MP3s. You've got a podcast. And now you can start reaching people. Do one on British history. Start writing. Start learning how to write and start writing popular articles. Go out and find an avenue for you to get your popular articles online for people to see. And if you do that, you're going to start reaching a fairly wide audience. There are people all the time that I wonder how in the heck they have such a nice audience when what they say is so incredibly stupid that uh, no one should really even care. But it's because they learn how to market online, they learn how to market themselves, and they've learned how to communicate effectively so that people will listen to what they have to say. And that comes down to learning how to write and also, again, learning how to communicate. So when I get questions, and, and I was just at a conference uh, in the middle of July, and the question came up, what can we do? We're so tired of this narrative. Learn how to write and write popular histories. Don't worry about the academy so much. Find your feet. Get on your feet somewhere else in the popular realm. Write books that people want to read. Learn how to do that. Learn how to come up, come up with an interesting story, some story in the past, and write an interesting tale about it that people would want to read about. And it can have your interpretation to it. If you're a libertarian, it can be a libertarian interpretation. If you're a, a paleoconservative, it can be a paleoconservative interpretation. We see this all the time with the left and the neocons because they have, uh, they have outlets 
but it doesn't mean we're blocked entirely either. There are definitely outlets for us to get our work out there, particularly if you learn how to write and you can gain some type of following with your communication skills. So after my pig to the Founding Fathers, my next book was The Founding Fathers' Guide to the Constitution, which was entire to be, entitled, uh, entitled that way, and of course intended to be, excuse me, a popular understanding of the Constitution. I wanted people to go out and get this thing and say, oh yeah, this is what the Constitution means. It was a guidebook. And of course, today you can get that book for eight bucks at Barnes & Noble. They've uh, purchased uh, some of the rights to it, and if you go to your Barnes & Noble, they might have it there in their discount section, their bargain section, for eight bucks all day long. And you can get it there. And that's wonderful. Go out and get eight bucks. Then I wrote The Politically Incorrect Guide to Real American Heroes, which didn't do as well as I thought it would. But again, the idea was to bring a popular history and bring out some of these people that nobody knows anything about. And I kept writing these popular histories. Uh, it was, uh, you know, the nine presidents who screwed up America. And of course, how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America. These are, these are popular histories intended to reach a wide audience so that people who aren't academics can, ex can, they can be accessible to those people. They don't have to have a PhD to understand it. And it took time for me to figure out how to do this. Uh, my wife used to remark, well, I, I don't, you know, I, I want you to write something that everybody can understand. You know, not everyone has a PhD, so write it that way. So I always kept that in mind. Okay, well, can I write something that everyone can understand? And they don't have to have a PhD to get it. They're just going to learn some history. And that has always been my goal. What can I do to write it to where people can understand it very easily? So I often use common vernacular. I use things that um, I wouldn't write if I was writing an academic paper or an academic talk or an academic book. I want people to read stuff. I listened to Shelby Foote and said, and said okay, I'm going to learn how to write. That's what I'm going to do. So my advice to you, everyone listening to this podcast, on the 100th episode of The Brian McClanahan Show, here I am doing this podcast. I'm reaching thousands and thousands of people through a podcast, through writing, through popular histories, more than I ever would if I was teaching at a research institution, more all day long through Learn True History. There are thousands of people that have subscribed there. That is a wonderful avenue. Now, of course, I did go out and get my advanced degree, and that does give you credibility if you want to do that, but don't always confine yourself to just doing the academy. Think about popular history. Think about public history. Think about doing things that are going to reach a mass of people. If your talent is photography and filmmaking, do that. We need lots of people doing that because that is how most people get their story of the American past. And it's what all of us should be striving to do. Remember, we have to interest the public intelligently in the past if we are going to make any inroads into interpretation, which is what all history is. If we're going to make any inroads into changing these awful interpretations that circulate around us, as, as Tom Woods calls it, the 3 by 5 index card of allowable opinion, we are outside of that. But we are making tremendous headway because of the Internet and because if we can write popular histories, we can reach more people. If we can do popular podcasts and popular shows, 
YouTube channel, whatever it is, you can reach more people that way. So I hope this inspired you. And of course, this is also think locally, act locally. What are you doing yourself just to try to reach more people in your own community and around you about the history of your area, your people, your place? What can you do for that? So all those things factor into it. And I hope it inspired you to go out there and do these things. Think about a popular avenue. Don't always think I have to write some academic book that some Harvard professor is going to like to read. They won't. And when you write an academic book, maybe five people read it anyways. But if you write a popular book, a hundred times that amount, a thousand times that amount, ten thousand times that amount might read it. A hundred thousand times that amount. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show, and I'll see you next time.